You cannot look at any major entertainment business now and say, you know, that, that's a really well-run company. When you're laying off thousands of people, that's not because you've made good decisions. And in a world, I mean, and so I think it's been more than 10 years, but probably a, a long stretch of 20 years where interest rates have been basically zero. So money is essentially free. And so these people live in a world where they just go and they borrow. I mean, Netflix grew by on borrowed money at zero percent. And they borrowed it all. And they made all these TV shows that sit unwatched on their servers. And they're wondering what happened. And what really happened was these guys had too much money. They spent it building stupid companies. There is no reason on earth why the world needs or economically rational choice would be to build Paramount Plus. Right? That's just dumb. You, we don't need Paramount Plus. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. I don't cover the entertainment business too much on this podcast, but uh, a little over a month ago, which seems like a long time ago now, I was uh, reading and hearing about the end of the almost six-month-long writer strike in Hollywood and uh, trying to make sense of some of the various issues therein, as well as just uh, the ever-changing nature of the business of uh, Hollywood more generally. And uh, I decided to call up Rob Long. Rob was a writer and an executive producer on the legendary comedy series Cheers, and he went on to create and produce several other shows. He's also the creator of a decades-long commentary series about the entertainment business called Martini Shot, which was originally on public radio and is now hosted by Ankler Media. And he's written for the Wall Street Journal and lots of other publications, now writes regularly for commentary. I brought him in because I wanted to understand what the writer strike was all about and keep in mind that the actors are still on strike and how much of it had to do with anxieties about AI. I also wanted to know uh, why the business model of the last 10 years or so in Hollywood seems to be suddenly falling apart. So we talked about all of that. We also talked about the staggering financial success of the movie Sound of Freedom and why it wasn't released through the usual channels. And finally, how Rob managed to get hired on Cheers when he was 24 years old and how you can do that too. Just kidding. Or maybe I'm not kidding. That's what vision boards are for. Uh, just a note on this conversation. It was recorded on October 5th. That's what I mean when I say it was, uh, it feels like a very long time ago now. So we may be uh, referring to things in the past that are now more in the past than they were at the time. But this is nonetheless a conversation that continues to be relevant and it's a great one. So here's Rob Long. Rob Long, welcome to The Unspeakable. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to have you here. I was thinking about this and I actually, in three years of doing this podcast, I have not covered the entertainment industry Really what? very much at all. I know. It's the only subject there is, apparently. I know. Especially papers. I'm yeah. in, in Los Angeles now. I don't know what oh I'm thinking. God. It's strange because this show is about culture and society, and <laughs> the absolute glue of that is the entertainment we consume. So I want to talk with you about a number of things, but I think I will start here. So last month, finally saw the end of a long writer strike in Hollywood. Right. right. It's been going on since May. Right? May 1, I think May 3 or 4, something like that, early yeah. May. So it's the yeah. second longest. Right. And the strike action was against the Trade Association for Film and Television Producers. Right. 
I'm sort of on the periphery of this business. I was in the Writers Guild for a brief shining moment of amazing health insurance. And I, I have some idea about what the issues were, but I think like a lot of people on the outside, I don't quite understand what was at stake. You have been in the WGA for more than 30 years. 33 years. 33 years. That's the magic number. You've also been writing commentary on the business for almost that long, including now in the magazine commentary. Right. So I want to ask, what did you make of the strike? And what did you think it was reflecting about the state of the entertainment business? Well, I mean, I'm sort of a contrarian on this because, I mean, ordinarily I'm very skeptical about writers in general. Being one, I think I know how irrational we can be. And, And the Writers Guild in general, the last trick we had, I didn't think was very wise. I didn't think it was very wise for us to do our action against the agents a few years ago. The one before this, you mean? Yeah, yeah there was a strike in, the, in 2007. And then we uh, we all fired our agents for a new agency deal in about a couple of years ago, three years ago. So I wasn't, I mean, crazy about this. But then going into it, I was really impressed by the way that the Writers Guild leadership sort of focused in on issues about that really matter to younger writers and writers just at the beginning, the first phase of their career, uh, which is not traditionally what they've done. So, uh, so the good news, and the bad news, I think, is that the strike accomplished a big thing. I mean, about eighty percent, maybe eighty-five percent of the you know everybody's crowing about how much this is going to cost, what this is going to mean. You know, uh, the Writers Guild leadership is saying, "Look, look at all this money we got from them." All that's true, but most of it is just in raising the minimum. So, just basically, in everybody got a pay raise along the same scale that they always did, that's about 80% of the whole deal is a pay raise, which is great. But for the past 25 years, uh, all those pay raises have been a little smaller, but they've been in a zero inflation environment. So we, we've maybe caught up to inflation, maybe maybe this a little on the, other, on the upside of inflation. But, you know, it's still, I say basically to people, it's like everything you hated about show business you know, in April of 2023, you're really going to hate the same amount and the same things in November of 2023. The strike's not going to take those things away. It's still going to be a really uncertain business. It's really going to be hard. Most people aren't going to make it. Most people aren't going to get their own show in the air. Most people aren't going to get a job on a staff of a, of a TV show that runs more than a year. Uh, more people are working now, and that's good, but that also means that more people are going to be not working who have worked. More people are going to have to be making tough decisions about leaving the business in the next five, 10 years. Because they're paying people more? Wait, I want to No, no, this. no. Just because the, because, the, because the business is mercurial, because it's always feast or famine, because there's more, there are more people in it, and it's going to be contracting a little bit, and just there isn't going to be room for all those people. It just it gets, you know, it's, the, it's like Freakonomics. You know, when, the, when, the, when they did that study of the mob, you know, the mob is this terrible business, if, unless you're the mob boss. If you're the mob boss, it's a fantastic business. But if you're just a little capo down there or you're a little foot soldier, it's terrible because you're always kicking money upstairs and you're never getting ahead. And that is sort of how it works in show business. People are in it because they love it and because they have a dream. And that love and that dream sustains them from throughout mostly very low earning years. On, and the promise and the, sometimes the optimistic and accurate prediction that they're eventually going to break it in and break it big, but it's often just numerically, statistically not going to happen. And if the writer's guild got every single thing it wanted without any compromise at all, if the, the studios just said, okay, fine, yeah, we signed this deal, done, no, no strike necessary, we'll do it all in 20 minutes, we agree, those things would still be true. Mm-hmm. What percentage of people in the writer's guild are actually working 
Well, that's a hard number to more now than ever. I mean, and, and I think one of the good things about the deal that the guild made is that it's kind of helped make sure that number is going to be slightly protected. It's hard to know how it's really going to shake out. They have sort of a minimum staffing requirements uh, for certain shows at certain budgets for certain weeks. It's, very, it's all really complicated about a pre-green room staff and a post-green room staff and all that stuff. I mean, a, a, a pre-green light staff and a post-green light staff. Um, <laughs> but it looks like that it's, it looks like they're going to be more and that, you know, that's, there are going to be more people are going to be allowed to take their best shot at it. But okay, that's it. Now, what do you mean by that? Because, well, first of all, I think people hear this and they say, well, as what I, according to what I heard, these writers are getting $20,000 a week, $50,000 a week, whatever it is. Why do they need a raise? So let's just start there. This is really basic stuff, but yeah, yeah. you know, well, this the, is not the, an insight. Yeah. This is not an a tr- industry show. So let's just kind of start there. What are people actually making? Well, it's the, again, it's super complicated because it depends on who those people are. The agreement is called the minimum basic agreement, the MBA, and the minimum part of it is okay. This is just what these companies will. Pay, that's the minimum they'll pay you. And there are certain things that you do, no matter who you are, you're going to get paid the minimum. So I create a show, which I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm technically a show runner, right? So I write and create a show. If I create a show and it gets ordered and I'm making a TV, I'm making a series out of it. And I write a script, an episode for a script of the show that I own. I'm going to get paid the Writers Guild minimum for a show of that length for that exhibitor, right? And so will the story editor the lowest or the staff writer or somebody lower on the rank, we all get paid the same to write a draft. Hmm. But I'm this freaking EP, executive producer, showrunner. So I get paid an additional big fee. I, I, make, I don't make my money on that. I make my money on my fee. And my fee is negotiated way outside the purview of the guild. That's my agent and my manager and people like that who yell and scream at business affairs and demand, you know, if I'm a really good person at what I do, it's going to be somewhere between 80 and a hundred thousand dollars an episode. If it's a, uh, if I'm a, if I'm a superstar, it's, it's a stratospheric number that nobody even pays because, you know, they pay the Greg Berlantes and the Shonda Rhimes. They pay them some insane amount on the, t- over the top just to, just to show up to work every day. If I'm a, fledgling young producer and i've just broken in out of this out of the staff and now i'm like writing drafts but i'm also kind of technically a writer producer you know i could who knows maybe somewhere between 20 and thirty thousand dollars an episode but that is entirely fungible and it's based entirely on what the marketplace will pay that writer under those circumstances at that time so the what's important to recognize is what we what the writers guild struck for and got was a deal based on minimums and and that shows you the the problem, the kind of the fissure in the in the in the writers' guild, which is like it's not like a union. It's not that like a union, like any other union, where everybody's kind of doing the same job, and those job descriptions are really really rigid. It's it you know we have plutocrats in there, we have billionaires in there, we have people who get paid two hundred thousand dollars, three hundred thousand dollars an episode, we have people who get paid eleven thousand dollars an episode. Every single one of those people, if they write in one episode, they have their name on it, written by that episode on a TV show. Um, they're going to get paid the Writers Guild minimum. But if they have a producer level credit or some other credit, they'll get paid another episodic fee on top of that. That's where people get rich, really. Right. So what is the minimum right now? 
I really honestly don't know. I really, a half hour, I think it's somewhere in the high 20s, maybe it's $30,000 to write a half hour uh, episode of half hour television for broadcast. It's going to be less for streaming and less for cable. Broadcast television is almost always pays you more. So for now, anyway, so that, that number is going to be the, the, the ceiling. Okay. Um, and then it, when, it's, when it's rerun again on that network, so you write, a, just say you write an episode of, I don't know, some CBS comedy. When it's rerun on that network that year, you get like 90% of that script fee again. Wow. And then the residuals go way down. They start going down and they get down, they go down really fast. Okay. But if somebody is young, they're starting out, say they get hired on a show, they get in a room. So these are writer's rooms. And we're going to talk about this new phenomenon, the mini room, which I know you've written about. Yeah, the mini room. (laughs) Sounds kind of creepy, but... um, Are they getting, but like presumably it's not like every member of the staff is writing an episode every week. So how is that? Yeah. What would you make if you get hired? If you're like a young person and you get hired into a room, what kind of money are you likely to make for whatever period of time you're working on that show? In today, today's world, you could write one episode, you know, it's like these are shorter seasons now. I mean, you know, broadcast TV is shrinking. So it's going to go away soon. So we're really talking about people who are working on episode uh, on series that have maybe 10 episodes a, a season or sometimes six episodes a season. Uh, and so they're going to write one. If they're lucky, they'll write one script. I mean, if the staff is big enough, if, it's, if, you're, writing six, if you're on a series that has six episodes and you don't write a draft, you don't write a script, an episode of that, you're not, you, you don't get paid. The, the, the writer's skill minimum won't matter. What will matter is your weekly rate. And I don't know what the weekly rate is, but it's not a lot. I mean, you're, you're, it has been now a, a pattern for young writers to break in and maybe they're on a show that does well and they do 10 episodes or 12 episodes of that show for a year and they get paid, uh, you know, maybe they make their weekly rate for production and pre-production and they may make $75,000, $80,000 for that portion. And then they're under contract until the show is picked up again and it's sort of exclusive. So they can't really do anything. That's called span, which is another They can't work for another they can't yeah, write they out can't, another show. Yeah, they're they're on and so so sometimes that seventy five thousand, eighty thousand dollars is gonna last you a year and a half. Which is I mean, you know, I'm not running my nose down on it, but it's it's not like you're getting rich. Right. Okay. So all right, and now the the conventional wisdom or at least you know, the way I've heard people talk about this is we have this glut of shows, we have streaming. I mean, you're talking about six episodes, you're talking about a streaming series. You're not talking yeah, about broadcast. Right. So like, this is a really simplistic framing, but okay, so we have suddenly all these streaming networks, we have a million shows, we can't even keep up with them. What has that done to the industry? Like what, because I know this is what you write about and this is what you talk about and this is what I'm trying to get a handle on. Like what has changed in the last, I don't know, five years and what are we looking at going forward? Well, I mean, traditionally, we, here's how it works in these contract negotiations, right? The writers are, um, you know, dramatic and and uh, uh, irrational, and they complain they're being, you know, uh, exploited by evil millionaires, right? You know, Mr. Burns yeah. twirling his mustache in the tower, right? But uh, basically, the idea was that okay, we're we don't have to be grownups because we're the writers. You have to be the grownups. So the underlying argument was always the rich, evil grownups running the business need to give us a bigger slice of the pie. But they're basically doing a good job growing the pie. You know, the, the tacit understanding of every writer skilled strike before then has been things are great for you guys. We built that. 
you ran it, you did made some good moves here in this business and grew it. We want our fair share. And this year is different. It's fundamentally the opposite. Because this year it's you guys are idiots. You have busted this business by being stupid. And now you want us to pay the price for that. And we're not going to do it. And there's a huge amount of truth to that. You cannot look at any major entertainment business now and say, you know, that that's a really well-run company. When you're laying off thousands of people, that's not because you've made good decisions. And in a world, I mean, and so I think it's been more than 10, it's been probably a, a long stretch of 20 years where interest rates have been basically zero. So money is essentially free. And so these people lived in a world where they just go and they, I mean, Netflix grew by on borrowed money at 0%. And they borrowed it all, and they made all these TV shows that sit unwatched on their servers. And they're wondering what happened. And what really happened was these guys had too much money. They spent it building stupid companies. There is no reason on earth why the world needs or economically rational choice would be to build Paramount Plus. Right? That's just dumb. You, we don't need Paramount Plus. The Paramount streaming service, right? I mean, it's so lazy. They spent so much money. They, didn't, they, although they named everything plus, right? There is no reason on earth why there needs to be a, like, there's an MGM plus. There's an MGM streaming. All these, this is bullshit. They don't need them. There's no reason on earth, actually, and I'm alone in this pretty much, that Netflix's terrible decision was to go raise money to make TV shows because they thought, well, you have to make our own TV shows because nobody will sell us their TV shows to watch on Netflix, if we don't make our own, that was their theory, which is a lie they told themselves, right? And we know it's a lie because Netflix is doing great with reruns. I mean, the number one show on Netflix, Netflix this summer was Suits, reruns of Suits, a nearly 20-year-old show that it was on USA Network like a million years ago. Huh. Uh, like if I was like a Netflix shareholder, I... Like and then and the the biggest show on my, on this network was an old an old rerun. I'd be saying, why are we spending so much money making shows that nobody watches? Have they really not? Like I, I, they make comedy specials. I mean, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I get it all jumbled up in my mind, but like ha, ne, certainly there have been Netflix originals that have done well. Yes, the argument isn't that they that that the, the, their argument is that if we don't make them, they won't get made, and if they don't get made, they won't get sold to us, and if they're made by somebody else, somebody else won't sell them to us, and that just isn't true. I mean, the history of show businesses, the people will always, if you have a barn, people are going to call you up and say, can I put on a show on your, in your barn? That's what we do. And Netflix had a gigantic barn and they decided, well, everybody wants to hang out with movie stars, okay? So like, if you want to hang out with movie stars, you want to be a player, you want to have all the, the you want to have all these celebrity heroes of yours at your house. Well, you know, you got to be making movies, right? You can't just be the buyer. But in fact, being a buyer is a better more economically sound position and had Netflix just decided to be a buyer, then Paramount Plus would be selling things to Netflix. Then Hulu would be selling things to Netflix. Then, you know, uh, I don't know, Max or whatever, they'd be, there, there would be, you know, I understand that Apple TV is going to have their own network and that Netflix is going to have their own network and even Amazon will have their own network because it's huge. But why is anybody else? And you can see how bad they are, right? We already know. Like, I, we don't, everyone agrees. You don't know what's on TV. If you want to watch something, you have to Google it to know how to watch it. That's not just insane. me. Okay. No, it's okay. And then even when you Google it, you try to find it. It takes you about 20 minutes to find it. If you're, if you use Apple, you have Apple TV, which I have, and you some, for some reason, by mistake on that tiny little 
finger remote that they give you, you click the wrong search box. Like it's, it's still a search box, but it's the wrong one. And you search for something, you get results from something that you don't own or you get results. You, you don't get what you want. It, no one in the entire entertainment industry has any experience with consumer uh, happiness or consumer experience. They don't have any experience with pricing. They don't have any experience running a platform, a, a, a tech platform. They don't have any experience doing any of the things they are now spending, raising billions of dollars to do. It's like so dumb. Just do the thing you do. Like as opposed to Netflix that has all this experience running this giant platform at a certain point wasn't like 30% of all internet traffic at night in America was Netflix. Like they're good at that. Just do that, man. That's a hard job. Focus on that. And trust me, show business, the entertainment business is designed. People will be knocking down your door trying to sell you TV shows and movies. You have called Netflix's decision to become a studio, a crazy Silicon Valley screw up. Talk more about that. Like it, so it sounds yeah. like a bunch of business, a bunch of businessmen, a bunch of yeah. business people from other industries basically came in and decided that they wanted to be Hollywood executives. Yeah, look, look, everybody looks at Hollywood. You know, smart people. These are smart people, and they look at Hollywood. They say this can't be that hard. These people are overpaid, and they are emotional weirdos, and it can't be that hard. And so the arrogance. From the outside, it, you know, lately it's been from Silicon Valley, but before that, it was in the giant conglomerates. I mean, Transamerica, giant insurance company, bought United Artists, and Coca-Cola, the world's most famous brand, bought Columbia TriStar. Sony, when they regret it, bought Columbia TriStar from Coca-Cola. It's all big companies always think they've got it all figured out, and they come and they realize, oh my God, this is a terrible business. Making movies and TV shows is terrible business if you don't love it already, if you're not intoxicated by it already. So they had this arrogant idea that we're going to, and, and if people in show business felt that way too, oh my God, these guys are going to come from the Silicon Valley and they're going to impose all of their efficiencies on us. It's going to be miserable. And instead, they came to Silicon Valley and from Silicon Valley. And guess what happened? It, what always happens is that they went, they went Hollywood. They ended up overspending on everything and they bought themselves really nice houses in the Beverly Hills and Bel Air and they had parties and they said, oh, what we really want is Oscars. And they went and they just spent money. Now, the problem with that is that interest rates were low enough that then everybody else spent money too. And it created this, you know, streaming wars, which means everybody overspent. Everyone was hemorrhaging. No one knew what to do. And then the only way out of this for them really was a strike, right? A break as, uh, the, for the circuit breakers to pop, which means that, you know, in 30 days, 90 days into a strike, you get to force majeure all your existing deals if you want. You get to rethink all the things you've agreed to do. You get to get out of any deal you want. You get to recalibrate your entire business model, which is what they're doing now. So everybody's doing it now. There's a reason why uh, Disney is you know, thinking about how they're going to sell ABC. There's a reason why... Netflix is already licensing more programming from other places. You know, the thing they said they could never do, they wouldn't be able to do. Now they're going to do it. Uh, they're all now adding ads, an ad-supported tier on all these things. The thing they said they would never do, of course, now they have to do. They are busily, in, they are at like a breakneck pace recreating show business in the 1970s. That's what it's going <laughs> to look like. We're going to see... Uh... Dick Van Patten's going to come back. And, uh, yeah, hey, we're going to... That show got like a 25 could be, could be worse. Yeah. 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 Okay. I want to talk about AI because, again, from the outside, when we hear about the writer strike and we hear about what they're concerned about, this comes up 
a lot. I don't know how big a concern this was in terms of the negotiations compared to what we actually hear about. But what is your take on that? Because I have heard everything from this is not a big deal, this is a moral panic, to they could literally program, they could use AI to program a writer's room and like, you know, create 10 individual people with their own personal history and background and sensibility and temperament and write the same show with bots as human beings could write. So where's the reality here? Well, I mean, I think ultimately it's like, I think three things. One, I think this is a much, much more urgent and real issue for the actors. So the the Screen Actors Guild is still on strike. I think this is going to be a big deal for them. The original proposal, which was, I, I think, may or may not be true that it was explicitly this, but the interpretation of the proposal was that the studios told the actors, the, the Screen Actors Guild, basically, uh, okay, if you're a background artist, which is what we call extras, right? Yeah, is that like a is that like a, a, a woke thing? Is it is it like oh, it's yeah. a microaggression to say extra? Um, you know, uh, it's like uh, you, you when I when I started, you said extra, and and a per- person who. Uh, <laughs> somebody who came in uh, basically had a guest part on a show like said you know three or four lines five lines maybe you called them a day player because you paid them by the oh. day yeah, you know, yeah. You know, who was the day player we had last week he was good let's bring that day player back we just said day player actors hated it and so then they you know they just said you have to call us co-star we're a co-star ridiculous <laughs> right but you gotta do it <laughs> That's fine. You know, we like our titles around here. Everybody, by the way, everybody in every studio is a vice president or a senior vice president or executive vice president. So I don't know why they're complaining. But all right. So then, so that background artist, which is the uh, term for an extra, and it isn't easy to do, by the way. People say it's really easy, but I did it once. We we were in the last episode of one of the last episodes of Cheers. The guys, the right, the people running the show, like with me. Um, the three other guys, we were we made ourselves extras at the bar, which you can see we're in the back of the bar. And we are so terrible. We had a few drinks before the show, to be fair. But we, we are so terrible at it. And how, you could, ter- how terrible could you be? Because you're not doing it right. You're just, you're, you're do- we, were, we look intense. We look like we're having a real conversation, which is not what you want. <laughs> you look like New Yorkers, not Yeah, we had to cut around ourselves. We had a guy sitting there <laughs> editing the show saying, can we cut me out? This is, I'm terrible. So it's not easy. Anyway, the, the argument, they, they, the original, this is apocryphal, but I think this was the, the, the heart and the gist of the deal of the, of the offer was the studio saying, look, we'll pay you. You're a background artist, but we own you forever. We own your, life, we own your likeness and everything we've got and all the, the digitized form of you uh, and your face. And we have it forever. And we're not going to pay you anything for it. And, you know, it's like, you know, this, you know, background artists you're like well no that's not that's not how right. it works you gotta pay me right so they are and and we already know the technology is there to put your face on anything and doing anything so that they have legitimate argument the writers i think are a little worried about something that isn't going to happen anyway although in the new deal there are strictures in place one of them is that only a writer can write can be a writer like ai cannot write a script officially so if the studio gives a writer uh, a script written by AI and says, can you rewrite this? Which, by the way, is probably not going to happen, but that's the nightmare scenario. The writer who rewrites it is not rewriting a script officially, according to the Guild. They are writing a first and original draft. Okay. Um, but they will get paid, in, you know, they'll get paid the minimum. They'll get paid the Guild minimum to do that, which is a lot less than usually people get paid who are good at it and have a track record. So it's completely hypothetical. To, to, to me, it's much, I mean, n- nobody in in show business wants to get rid of writers 
They don't like no studio wanted. But they've to always away. wanted to get rid of writers. No, they like the writers. The ones who come up with all the ideas and write the scripts. They, they, they we're annoying, and we are, yeah. and we're irritating, and we talk too much, and we complain about everything. We spend too much money on lunch, but you know nobody wants to get rid of us. They like they're just trying to figure out a way to afford us and all of their mistakes, and that is kind of what drove the strike. So the. Uh, the result of the deal is complicated for AI for writers, but it pretty much protects them. I believe that the people who are real look, the people who are in danger and have been in danger forever of automation, at least since they automated the, you know, the assembly line, have been middle management. You know, if I was a manager or vice president at a studio, I'd be worried about AI. That's who's gonna replace that's who the AI is gonna replace first or the incredibly bloated ranks of executives who you don't need anymore. But if you're a top executive, like the, the whole point of your day, the only fun thing about your day is calling up the writer and giving the writer notes, right? Telling the writer to do <laughs> you, something again. Right. That's you fun. That's like, that's why you're in the job. So you're not going to, what do you want to type that into a search box and send it to chat GPT? That's no fun. Well, how are the middle managers going to be eliminated by AI? Well, because they're the studio guys who have to read scripts and they have to come up with alternate ways to market them and they have to give notes to and they have to write summaries for their bosses because no one of the bosses read. So they have to do something called coverage, which is really okay. the entry level job for a, a young executive that that's going to go. Why do we need that? And they're going to have to know stuff about other movies and other stories that they don't know. And their boss can do their do the job of five underlings. Again, I don't, I don't really think it's going to happen because, again, part of the fun of being a boss is you got people working for you. It's not as fun when you're just typing into a screen. So you don't think that some studio could come along and, I, well, I mean, I guess it would be violating the guild rules, but I mean, I guess you can stay, you can be a non-union shop. They, you don't think some studio could come along and just say, okay, we're going to do an experiment and we're going to produce five shows and they're going to be written by AI and we'll see if you can tell the difference? I maybe I mean I and like I again it depends on the genre I guess look if I had to do five days uh, in a row of daytime drama I mean I don't know maybe AI will help me out there yeah I mean I, I think a police procedural could be written by yeah, AI like law and Seriously. order yeah 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 you're out of order counselor how many times you you know <laughs> like <laughs> no I mean I'm not saying that I'm not saying that to put it down I just think that would be an obvious place to yeah. start. I think that's probably true, but the, again, I'm not sure it's going to be easier. I, I, I guess what I should say is this. AI, I think, for the next decades at least, will be a tool that writers use and not a tool that studios use. Hmm. If you're an okay writer, I think AI is going to make you probably a good writer. And if you're a good writer, I think AI is going to be a superpower. But if you're a bad writer, I think AI is going to be the end of you. Okay, how would you use AI right now as a writer? I don't know how to use it. I, I, I don't, I mean, I write comedy. Like, I, I keep saying, show me how this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm as lazy as shit. Like, show me how this thing's going to write a joke and I will do it. And no, and people go, oh, it can write jokes. And I'm like, send me two. And then they're dumb. They're, they're like Dixie Cup jokes that I'd fire <laughs> the person who pitched that joke. So they're not great. Now, maybe theoretically in the future it could, but I, I use it more when I'm writing prose, honestly. Like, just trying to get, like, I had to write a piece where I needed to like in the first paragraph, I need to explain just a bunch of historical things. And I tend to overwrite everything and make, I use a lot of M dashes and I just, you know, I'm, I'm ornate and that I, I couldn't do that. That was, it just wasn't going to work. So I asked 
chat GPT to write a very clear paragraph in short sentences describing the events of this. And uh, boy, it was great. And it came out, it was fantastic. Right. And, okay, and I so- added a little stuff to it. I addressed it. You know, I tailored it and made it my own, as they say. But um, I, I, it, it took me t- five minutes to do that, where it had taken me half a day to do it, to get out of my own way and do it. Right. Okay. So when you're saying that AI is going to help writers, you don't mean screenwriters and television writers. I think it, it might. I mean, it, it, I, 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 it's hard for me to know, right? Because I, I wouldn't know how to do it. So to me, it seems like you can't be done. But that doesn't mean it can't be done. Maybe it can be done. I, I just don't know how the computer comes up with a story. I mean, I've had, I've, I want to talk more about AI. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm sort of starting here because I want to have more conversations about this on this podcast because I'm hearing from people saying you could program this thing to write an entire season and without a single human touching a keyboard. Oh, okay. But maybe they're catastrophists. Yeah, or they're fantasists about. <laughs> that's a good, good idea for a show, actually. The story of technology has been it never really does that shit, right? What do the computers do? What, is, what, is, what does the internet do? It gives you cat videos and Elon Musk. Huh. Okay. We were, I don't know. Did it make it better? I don't know. Uh, I put it this way. Everyone said when YouTube happened, why would you pay somebody a million dollars a year or whatever to make a TV show when you got these kids in, you know, wherever making these hilarious sketches uh, for nothing and they're monetizing their own, their own stuff. Like why? Like uh, user-generated content is going to just destroy Hollywood. Well, it didn't do that. Did it not do that? I want to shift a little bit and talk about who is consuming what. So we've been talking mostly about television here, but let's shift to movies for a second. Feature films. Uh, I mean, it, even before the pandemic, people were not going to the theater as much. So what do we know about audiences and just the sort of climate around getting a feature film made? Well, I mean, I think, I think feature films were in trouble. I think they still are kind of in a transition, but I don't think it's because people are consuming less entertainment. You know, inter- the interesting number for, you know, hours of use is like uh, YouTube versus TikTok. You know, when TikTok it was introduced, it was like it shot up with average daily, average daily use or whatever that number is. And um, YouTube didn't go down. It just kind of added to everything. And I kind of feel like, well, once you start putting movies and long-form entertainment and long-form entertainment and movie-type entertainment on streaming service with no rating, right? So, you know, you can show and say things on TV now that you couldn't do before. And once you do that and you're doing, you know, kind of adult-ish drama, kind of, like it does, it, it, the, why people go to the theater becomes a question mark, but it isn't the same thing as the Hollywood is dying. It's just delivering its material in a different way. But again, I kind of feel like that's, um, I, I, it's unprovable, but I, I remember, uh, you know, you do too, like every summer, there were like big summer comedies, two or three or four of them, like Will Ferrell and Ben Stiller and. Kevin Hart and they, you know, and they were big comedy. Everybody, everybody would go see Zoolander, yeah. And even now, people use Zoolander catchphrases. Or, or Austin Powers still exists in people's minds. Or, or you know, Anchorman. Like uh, people are obsessed with Anchorman. Right? Yeah. And um, those movies made a whole lot of money, and they were great summer comedies. And they don't put them out anymore. 
And the question is, you have to ask yourself, is, is it because the audience doesn't want to go to the movie theater in the summer and see a great summer comedy? I don't know. Maybe. If Will Ferrell put out Talladega Nights again, I go see it. If, it, if, he, if that was in the theater suddenly and you know, it was new to me, I would like, I would, I would actually Well, people went to theater. see, I mean, obviously they will go. I mean, they saw Barbie. That was kind of an anomaly yeah. possibly. And but, they saw Sound of Freedom. Right. Yeah. I want to talk about that in a second, but I just want to make sure, because it, I mean, from, again, it seems to me like you've got these generations coming up and they're used to watching things on their phones. Yeah. So the impetus to actually go, you know, the idea of, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody say, oh, well, you really need to see this on the big screen. I really wanted to see this on the big screen. I mean, the big yeah. screen would now mean your laptop, okay, as right. opposed to your phone. So, I, so, but you're saying they 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 stopped making these movies. Like, did they? When did they stop making them? And I mean, I'm trying to think. Like, when is the last? I I just felt like I got really lazy at one at some point. Like maybe ten years ago. Yeah. I just watched every. I don't even have a TV. Like I just watched stuff on my computer. I can't even be bothered to like walk into another room and turn on a TV <laughs> if I had one. Oh, you're the enemy now. Um, no, that's like I yeah. I'm not saying that everything's going to be the same. I just I just sometimes feel like people in show business say no one wants to do X or Y anymore. I'll tell you what. I mean, I remember when I was in film school, somebody came like like my like first month, and so they had all these ins inspiring characters. And, he, and I do I forget who this was, but some big deal guy came and said to us in the, in the screenwriting program at UCLA, the, the MFA program, which is then very very famous. Said, Look, you guys. You're the storytellers of the future. You're the shaman around the campfire. You need to tell stories that are true to you. You got to like dig down deep into your heart and your soul and come up with the stories that people want to hear. You've got to be raw and honest and self-investigatory and incredibly personal to dig down and tell us a wonderful, wonderful story that's unique to you. And if you do that, you will be doing yourself a service and the world a service as long as it's not a Western because nobody wants to see Westerns. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was the kind of line. And he wasn't kidding. He's like, yeah, just don't, don't write a Western because I can't sell those. And then like a year later, or even it was that year, like there was a big Western and there were the Young Guns and Silverado and the Young Guns 3 and these things made hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm like, okay, nothing works and then it works. So I don't know. Put on a Will Ferrell comedy and put it in the theaters and see what happens. If it doesn't work, then you know, yank it in a month and you know, send it back to uh, to streaming. But you know, uh, Disney just uh, Pixar just released Disney Pixar just released that movie Element the Elemental Elemental something like that. I forget what it's called. Mm. And uh, it died. It was two weeks, three weeks. It was over, dead. Yeah, DOA. And everybody yeah. was saying, "Oh my God, this is the end of Pixar. This this movie is a disaster. What are they going to do?" And then actually, over time, people said, "I should go see that movie. It's really good." The movie's make going to make a billion dollars. It was it's a it's a giant success. Everybody thinks they know. Just you know, try. I remember a, a network pr a president once told me like he's like you know I really want you to we really want you to do something for us. He said, and you know we're looking for kind of a new kind of comedy because the kind of traditional comedies just they aren't working on our network. And I said, well, which ones do you have on that aren't working? And he said, well, we don't have any on. So well. Well, what about last year? He goes, well, we, we haven't had them on in a few years. Okay. Well, why don't you try it? <laughs> I mean, why don't you, like, why don't you try it? I don't know. Try it. See what happens. Like, everybody thinks they know. The great thing about show business is you don't have to know because it's impossible.
All right. Well, speaking of people don't know, let's talk about Sound of Freedom. This is a movie that I suspect a lot of people listening to this podcast have not seen. I know you've written about it. I want you to sort of tell the backstory of this film and its making and its release as much as you can. I mean, we should say that this is one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable film in history at this point. It's made more than $170 million domestically alone. And uh, this is totally outside of the any kind of studio that we know of. I mean, it is there is a studio, but it's not the ones that we've heard of. It sort of is and sort of isn't. So uh, Sound of Freedom is a, is, a, is a kind of action-adventure picture about child sex trafficking. So it's a... Well, it's, just, it's like Taken, right? It's Taken, except it's not Liam Neeson, the father. It's just a, a disillusioned Homeland Security agent. But it's basically that. It's a, uh, the writer is a friend of mine. He goes, it's a rescue the princess story. And so it's about this uh, child sex trafficking. And then this guy rescues the, 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 a little girl and finds out that her little brother is still in the ring. And he's got to go and rescue the little brother because he can't live with himself unless he does it. So he basically has to quit the bureaucratic, red tape-laden federal bureaucracy and go rogue. Uh, you know, this it's like a little, little bit taken, a little Mission Impossible. A little, you know, it's got everything, right? And so uh, it was inspired, the director uh, had saw, I guess it was a 60 Minutes piece a few years ago about this, and it was inspired to, to, to write an action-adventure picture about it. And he and my friend partnered together to write it, and they tried and tried and tried, and they had a bunch of different versions of it. And full disclosure for me is that my friend, uh, Rod Barr, he and I are on the board of a homeless youth agency in Hollywood called My Friend's Place, which we've been involved in for almost 20 years. And so it kind of feels like this is a topic that we talk about at board meetings a lot, because it's... When you see homeless kids on the street in LA, that that's a form of sex trafficking. That's what's happening right there, right where we live. So he's kind of already kind of into it. So he's already kind of like energized to to uh, write a story about it. Um, but it's still a Hollywood movie. We still know it's going to be a happy ending. We still know all the things we, we know. And and then they met a guy who did it. It was based on. And instead of using him as a uh, creative consultant you know, background guy, they decided, well, his story is actually pretty great. And so they tell a version of his story. Now they, they, they dress it up a little bit. They change some details. They make it a movie, but it's inspired by true events. Okay. This is Tim Ballard. Just Tim so Ballard. People know who has a yeah. interesting background. He was, yeah. Now Tim Ballard himself and- is, yeah, has an interesting background and has now has, uh, has a little, has some, some me too issues or some, some other problems. Like he's not, they made a movie. He's not the most reliable narrator, but right, right. But I mean, the, but the, the the things that happen in the movie, the big move things that happen in the movie happen in real life. There's enough corroboration for that. Um, but again, they're not saying it's like history. They're saying it's inspired by true events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing. You know, it's just it's like a movie. And so they make the movie, get the money, and they make it, and they make it for twenty twentieth, and. Um, and I think at the time, people thought it was going to be sort of a Taken-ish thing, and it's kind of what it is. But then 20th is sold to Disney, and Disney buys it and has to digest all the unreleased, undistributed, I think even unfinished, 20th projects. And then uh, COVID hits, and nobody knows what to do. And they're looking at the movie, and they're saying, well, we don't know how to market this. Um, this seems like it's a one-off kind of a picture, and it's just, we don't have, it's just, it goes outside of our screen. Wait, why don't they know how to market it if it's just it's kind of boilerplate in the ways that you just described? Because they don't because they don't do those movies anymore. Okay, those movies don't get made, and it's just too risky because you you don't know if it, it doesn't really. The star was Jim Caviezel, who's not really a star, and it's like I don't know how are we can like it's not Liam Neeson. It's like how are we going to get this? How do we do this? 
And it's just too much work. And uh, look, the conspiracy theory on the right is always that's because they knew that the movie was had a conservative vibe to it, which is kind of not true. Or they are uh, pedophiles and yeah, sex exactly. The QAnon, exactly. Right. They're drinking the, the blood right. of their own right. Of now, their as, as it turns out, Jim Caviezel, the actor, kind of maybe a little QAnon-y. But I mean, look, actors with nutty crackpot beliefs are not rare no. in Hollywood, right? Mel Gibson, classic. right? Yeah. Tom Cruise, right? I mean, you know, like Tom Cruise, what are you like? <laughs> I don't, we don't is, talk is, about that on here. Is Mission Impossible a Scientology movie? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, Everything anyway. is a Scientology movie. <laughs> that's right, right, right. Well, that's because you're a clear, you're not an operating Thetan or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so the movie, so, so Disney doesn't know what to do with it. So they get it back and, uh, and they find a distributor and then they figure out the way to do it is to distribute it in a certain way. Angel Studios is kind of has, is sort of a faith based, you know, outfit. And um, they so they release it kind of among people who are very concerned about child sex trafficking, uh, which is a problem. Like we have another issue in the country, which is that people believe that if I disagree with you politically, that, you know, I'm going to be reactively contradictory to whatever you think. So if you and I vote differently and I say it's going to rain tomorrow or it's raining right now, you will say, no, it's not raining right now. You just think that because you voted for Hillary, you voted for Trump, right? That's because we live in a stupid bill. Anyway, so movie's basically a Rescue the Princess movie, but Jim Caviezel says some weird stuff, and then people think, is the QAnon movie? But on the other hand, it's a good movie, and a lot of people saw it, and it actually is a really, you know, it's a very gripping movie. Rod wrote a really good movie. And uh, and he's not a conservative. He's Rod is a, you know, kind of a center-left progressive Catholic. And, like, People went to the movie theater because they were they wanted to see a movie in which the guy rescues the little girl and then goes back and the rogue operating on his own, which is a great story, right? Goes and saves the little boy and makes a promise to the little girl that I will do this. And then he fulfills that promise and the family's reunited and uh, you feel good. I mean, I don't know. What do you, it's like Tony Shalhoub said in, uh, in Barton Fink and he's turning to uh, John Turturro who's confused, doesn't know what to write. He goes, well, it's a wrestling picture. What do you want, a roadmap? It's like, yeah, it's like, well, it's a, you know, rescue the kid. But, uh, but do we know who is going to this movie? Because is it a phenomenon among religious people that they are going to this movie en masse, so to speak, in droves? Like, because I'm, I'm wondering if there's a parallel to, you know, back in the 70s, we had Frank Schaefer, who made the, you know, those movies about abortion. This was covered in John Ronson's podcast about the origins of the culture wars. Things fell apart. So this like incredible story about how the modern abortion, anti-abortion movement really got started because of this one guy who was growing up in this weird, like, you know, Labrie, which was this sort of religious community in Switzerland. He was an American guy. He wanted to be in Hollywood. So he ended up making, he got really caught up in anti-abortion activism and made this movie I think it was called like ten thousand dolls or something. It was about like yeah. it was just this very yeah. It was this very intense, weird uh, movie about you know pro life movie that like Hollywood would not release and it was you know banned from theaters. And then it just because of that it just took off and it really was the beginning according to you know certain narratives. I'm not I'm sure it's not that simple, but it was the beginning of this kind of movement around abortion. And um, I wonder if there are any parallels here. Like it's suddenly people are talking about, like, has this made the sort of child sex trafficking conversation sort of less fringy? Is that part of the appeal of this movie? 
Well, I mean, that would be a good thing, right? Because it is a problem. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying, yeah, but I mean, it is like, a, I, I feel, I mean, I, again, this is something I, sh- I should cover more here. Well, I, I actually feel like we, as a culture, we just, we took a giant stupid pill. And so people are unable to say, oh, well, child sex trafficking is a bad thing. If it's, if the QAnon people are also worried about it. And I'm like, the QAnon people are insane. Right. right? I mean, John F. Kennedy Jr. is not alive and Hugo Chavez, or you, no, I'm sorry, mixing the Hugo, the not crazy 2020 election conspiracies with the crazy QAnon conspiracies, which is possible because a lot of those <laughs> are the same people. But I also, I would push back a little bit on the Ronson theory. Like the idea that you needed to, the people needed to see a movie to be against abortion is very weird and already starts from a perspective that only people who are only the most gullible and credulous and uncritical people would ever take a pro-life position. I mean, I, I say that as somebody who's not pro-life, but the people I know who are pro-life didn't become because they saw a movie about it. They actually have a very strong philosophical and often uncomfortably convincing for me moral arguments that I find uh, I turn my brain off because I, I don't want I agree with them. But, and I don't agree with them, but they're not, they're not lunatics. Oh yeah, no, I would, I would agree with you there. I just, my understanding is that the, you know, the abortion movement was not something that the religious community was taking up necessarily. Uh, like Catholics weren't that invested in or talking about it. Um, certainly the, the religious, you know, evangelical, right, was not That's talking a about it until movement. this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, uh, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about the, the reaction to the movie uh, or the or what I've heard about the reaction to the movie is people in government uh, reminding people who like, which happens a lot, who are uh, exercised about this issue that they've been working on this issue for many years. So there's a tra- there's a sex trafficking commission in LA. LA County's got one. I think maybe it was LA City, and they work really hard. And so you know, there's a bunch of people saying, "What are you guys doing about this?" And like, "Well, we've been working really hard on it. Nobody's been paying attention to it till now." And so maybe now they'll pay attention to it. I guess that's something that a movie can do that's positive. I don't know if we know who's seeing this movie, but it's about $200 million domestically. And it's about $200 million global, foreign. The movie's going to make a half a billion dollars probably by the end of the year, maybe more. Yeah. Um, No, it's it's a whole lot of people. It's not just the, it's not, you know, I hope it's not just the, I hope there aren't enough QAnon people. (laughs) Yeah, no, that (laughs) would would be alarming. It's a lot of people. (laughs) And I think part of the problem for people who are trying to figure out a way to not like this movie, which I understand why, I mean, everybody has that impulse, it's human. It's just kind of a picture about a guy trying to save a kid, which is, you know, I mean, I look, I I, I say this to Rod all the time. Listen, I 100%, you're great. You're a great writer. I really admire what you did. Big hit. But it's not like he's invented the wheel here. He made a Hollywood movie. Well, it's also look. I haven't seen the movie. I, it's but uh, because I would have to go into the theater to see it. But you know, I've seen excerpts of it, and I've seen the trailer. And you know, in terms of the filmmaking, it doesn't. I know. I, I, I'm sure you're. I'm sure Rob is, Rod is a great screenwriter. But like, it doesn't look like a sophisticated movie. I will just say, like, there is something about the aesthetic of it. It seems to lack a sophistication that you would expect to get from a traditional studio or something that was in release and was being reviewed and was being talked about in the culture. And I wonder if you, I mean, presumably you've seen the movie um, and we're not here to you know, critique the movie, but I wonder if you have thoughts just about the sort of way that the movie is kind of translating to people. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a low budget movie. So it's a $14 million okay. movie. That, Fair that, enough. That, okay. That has a lot of location shoot, sh- shoots. So it, it doesn't have the, what we traditionally think of as the polish of a, of a $200 million movie. But I think the fact that the audience, there's a giant broad audience for it, 
suggest that we may be in show business, maybe spending a little too much time on our CGI. Yeah, I'm not even talking about that. I'm not talking about slick production values. I'm talking about just a kind of artistically. I don't know. There were <laughs> there was something about the trailer with like my country tis of the with the way the singing was. It just looked very uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame. Let's just I put think it, it that way. I think it has a lot of I, look. I think it's corny. Yeah, I think yes. that's true. Yes. I think it's that's probably a very very avoiding. fair argument. But you know, I would just uh, I would just want to remind people in Joe business that you could be too cool for school. And if you're wondering why your comedies and your dramas on TV and the movies are declining, maybe it's because you think your audience is stupid and they know it and they don't want to be called stupid, but they still, it's still a movie. And like, as a friend Leibowitz once said, like, here's how you know movies are not an art form because they, they show them in a place that sells orange crush and juju. <laughs> and I was like, I think everybody who makes movies should just get the stick out of their ass a little bit and make a fun movie. And, It'd be re- it'd be remarkable. I mean, if what what if people went into the office to write a comedy, writing a comedy show, and just were going to try to be funny, not going to try to like teach you a lesson or be a quasi therapist, but just or be transgressive, make, yeah, be, yeah, just just be funny, just be funny. I don't know. Maybe things would be. Maybe we'd get the audience back because right now, like, there's a resurgence, there's a renaissance in in comedy clubs, which were so incredibly like for 20 years after the 90s, they're like we we all got sick of them, and then yeah. they kind of died. You know, like, comedy club? Are you kidding me? Now it's it's if you want to see something genuinely funny and transgressive and different and like maybe a little naughty, that's where you got to go for sure. Yes. So before you go, I want to talk with you about your first job. Um, you were, I think, 24 <laughs> when you got hired I was on Cheers. 24, yeah. Speaking of like old-fashioned funny comedy, how in the world did you manage that? Well, I mean, I managed it by being exactly in the right place at exactly the right time, basically. I mean, I was in, uh, as I said, I was in UCLA in film school, and I wrote a, I think I wrote a script for something, and this writing writer uh, writing workshop I was in, you know, you had to read some of your work and then, uh, then you sort of look up and your colleagues ask you questions about it. And so one, one woman was in my class and she, she kind of pointed to it, like, you know, kind of lip curled and distaste and said, I, this just feels like television. She said, (laughs) um, which I, I I did not know at the time was supposed to be an insult, but at the time I thought, Oh God, yeah, yeah, you're right. This was the 80s, presumably. It was like 1988. And so I thought, uh-huh. okay, well, let's move to TV. So I had a, a, a friend of mine I had written some plays with in college, and he was working in New York, and I had just gotten out of college. He was a couple years older than me. And we wrote a couple specs, and then somebody said, here's what you do. And they just explained to me, which no, no, nobody knew at the time. Now, of course, every college campus, their kids writing spec this, spec that. They all know about show business. But then nobody knew. You write a couple specs, and you find the, a, a couple agents that who represent writers that you like that have a kind of a career that you want, like are young writers on shows that you like. And you used to be able to call the Writers Guild, uh, one certain number you could call them, and they would, and you, you give them three. You could only ask for the it's called the agency department. You could ask for the the uh, the agents for three writers, only three per call. And you had to hang up and call back. Seriously, this is like wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. So if you wanted to reach a writer. Wait, yeah. or you wanted to reach the agent. How, who were you trying you to reach? You want to reach the agent. So what you, what you do is you watch TV and you watch the shows that you like. It still kind of can work this way, by the way. You watch the shows that you like and then you write down the names. And back then, you know, we didn't have TiVo. You had to write down the names of the writers that are at the level that you kind of are, but not the executive producer creator, but the story editor and the executive script consultant on the low level. 
And then you call the Writers Guild, find out who those agents are. And then you send those agents directly a letter and you say, hey, here's who we are. We're really bright and we wrote the spec. Would you read it? And uh, most of them just don't even respond because they're agents and they're lazy. And then three of them said, yeah, I'll read it. And then two of the, th of the three, two just kind of didn't read it. Or one read it overnight and then sent it back and said, thanks, no thanks. And then one read it and then didn't say anything. And then one read it and I had to call her. And then she said, yeah, I read it. It's great. Get in here. And so we signed that day. And then a month later, she was an agent partner at a big, at a small boutique agency. It was very powerful at the time. This is before CAA was giant and all these names were, you know, these, these names didn't exist. Everybody, everything was small. And they, uh, they were the, they represented Cheers and a bunch of other TV shows. And she said, okay, you go, the guys at Cheers want you to go and pitch a couple episodes to them because they have room in their budget for a staff writer, she said. And so we went and we pitched three terrible ideas that were terrible. <laughs> Do you remember what they were? I think one of them was like, oh, someone discovers that Sam, there's nude pictures of Sam Malone. Uh, it's like, oh, weird. I bet a lot, of, a lot of ladies would have liked that. That's what I thought. A lot of people would have liked that. Uh, I don't know. Whatever, whatever we did was dumb. And they said, oh, these are terrible ideas, but like, you, your guys are kind of funny. We like you. You seem personable. So here's a story we've been working on. You go and write an outline for it and bring it back. And so we went and we got hired to write, an, write a script. And so we went, went away. We wrote an outline. We brought it back. And they said, this is a pretty good outline. Some really bad jokes in here. You, you, you need to work on that. And then we were in. That's how it worked. Would anything work that way now? Um, presumably, Not they told you to write a script. But, so did they, but they paid you to, to write the script. So presumably, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, could, they couldn't have gotten away with just like do free labor. Oh, no, no, they, no, no, no. They, 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 yes. they, they said, this is the script. This is the, the story we've been working on. We want you guys to write it. And, uh, and so we wrote a, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a good outline for people who had never written an outline before, but I think it, had our second outline been that quality, I think they would have fired us. Because mm -hmm. the thing yeah. is, you can learn, you, you, you can't learn talent, right? You can either write jokes or not. Yeah. But you can learn craft. And that's the one thing you got to learn fast. Right. So, okay. So you say that would never happen now for, give us a few reasons why. Um, first of all, there are too many shows on and there are no shows that last, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 years like Cheers. So when we joined the show, it was already in its seventh season, I think. So it's like, it already like was a machine. So we, we, we couldn't break the machine. What they needed was exactly what we were offering, which is like fresh, young, energetic, wide-eyed, you know, energy. It was a room where they, the room had been constructed, and all these rooms were like that then, where you had a couple of old guys who would come in one day a week who were just too rich to come in every day. They weren't going to come in every day. They'd come in every, you know, one day a week, and they would consult, but basically they were just kind of there, and they would pitch jokes, and they would fix stories, and they would do a lot of great stuff, but also they were there kind of like for continuity's sake, that, you, that, that this show was going to be a, a Cheers episode from the start to the finish in all of its production was going to resemble kind of the way they did the Dick Van Dyke show. Right. Run through, Wait, Were these rewrites. the guys, Cha yeah. Cha Cha Charles, what, their names were like first on the credits, was it? It was yeah, like Glenn, something Char Glenn and Les Charles were brothers and they had starred, I think, on the old Bob Newhart show. Or maybe they wrote, a old, uh, they wrote a Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, and then Taxi and then Cheers. And uh, the director was Jim Burroughs, who was their third partner. And Jimmy had done, was a stage manager, which they still had stage manager at the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then he was a director uh, on the Bob Newhart show and directed Taxi. Oh, I love Taxi. Yeah, Taxi is a great show, right? So I think that's my favorite sitcom ever. I, I think say. it's a great, great show. I mean, Taxi is a great, great show. But I mean, again, I was like, these things, you know, if you don't have a system that works that way, you know, how do you... 
like I don't. I mean, you know, I, I I'm I hear what, what, yeah. yeah yeah I see yeah. I hear like these shows. It's shows don't work that way anymore, which is really too bad. But what was the climate like in the writers' room? Because what we hear now is people are afraid to pitch jokes, or I mean, this is a <laughs> yeah. whole other discussion we don't have to get into. But like, we've got these like you know diversity. We've got these like in- inclusivity hires, and only certain people can say certain things. And there's a kind of like self people are throttling themselves. I mean, in the writer's room at that time, presumably it was a bunch of white guys. So be that as it may, was was it just kind of more freewheeling and was the creativity level just, was it easier to be creative? No. I mean, I think this, the rule was you had to be funny and you know, the, uh, the bottom line you discover pretty much your first day is if you pitch a joke and no one laughs, it's not because they didn't hear it. <laughs> well, I don't say it again louder. Like the, the, the lack of response to it is also a response. So I, I you know, look, I mean, I am genuinely, I, I genuinely love the, the idea of having a noisier, more diverse, more kind of reflective kind of off the wall writing staff. I think the shows could be much, much better. I mean, it is true. They were all, you know, we weren't all men, they were women on the, on the staff, but you know, predominantly male, predominantly Jewish, predominantly, you know, comedy writers. What do you think? And I think it's better to have a bunch of different people in there, but it's still a comedy writer's room. And so everyone's going to like put on their big boy pants and, and, you know, it's not a place you can go if you're sensitive, not just because people are going to be mean to you because they really aren't, although there's a lot of teasing. It's just that it's a tough atmosphere. You're trying to make other people, you're trying to make the funniest people you've ever met think that you're funny. And it's a hard thing to do. And you're already kind of weird because you write comedy. Like, no, those are not normal jobs. So, yeah, so it can be tough. There, but there is a part of it. The thing is that it's, it's a, there's a little kind of children of the corn vibe to some of these shows where everyone's young and no one's done it before or they've done it. They did six episodes of some other bullshit show that nobody watched. So there's no old guys like we had to say, yeah, this is a dumb idea. You you don't don't say things. to They can yell at the showrunner. I mean, you know, the... I remember the first day, one of our consultants who was a legendary writer was like looking at the showrunners where my boss is saying, what, this is the stupidest story I've ever read. What are you doing? This is crazy. None of this makes any sense. Like, and you know, they just, okay, well, all right. Crotchety old man, but he's not wrong. We got to fix it. There's nobody like that anymore. Uh, so like, you know, some of these shows, it's just like everybody running the show is some version of King Joffrey. You know, you got to be careful of that. What shows do you like now? Um, you know, I don't watch enough. Um, uh, I have this weird thing. I'm, I have a, I, I'm, a, I've got a Criterion channel membership. So every time I go to watch something, I'm like, well, what's on Criterion first? And then there's always some weird thing I want to watch. Um, I do, I like, uh, look, I think Abbott Elementary is a terrific show. I think it's really funny. And I think See, it's I have like, not seen that. It's I've really good. Heard of it. It's really okay. good. And that is a perfect example. Uh, what happens when you open the, you open the business up a little bit. You end up getting really, really, really funny, specific shows that are still shows. Like, it's a set in a school. Like, okay, so it's Welcome Back Hotter, right? This is, they didn't break any new ground. It just was, a, it's a kind of different set of voices, a different set of prior, different kind of storytelling, but it's like, it's a school show. What do you want? Like, so there's a, that, there's a couple of other, I mean, I'm just trying to think of the ones that I just really love. I mean, I'm I'm also love all spy things, so I'm like super into slow horses. I love that, and I'm a francophile, so I've been watching um, Lupin too, which I think is just the third season's out now. So that's kind of it. I, w- my problem with TV, the, the new modern TV, is it's like 
it's all so complicated. Like if you can get through the finding it, then you discover that it's like 11 episodes they're all connected and you got to watch them all. And then somebody tells you some bullshit thing, which always drives me crazy. Oh yeah. The first four are really slow. And then the five, fifth one. Oh, gets I know. Really good. Like, what the hell? <laughs> it doesn't get good to the last episode. Yeah. And then totally it all it. makes sense to you. Yeah. Like if you're <laughs> bored and confused, you're supposed to be, which is not the way it's supposed to work. Or like, oh, I my say, oh yeah. The first two seasons are not really great. The third season, like third season. What do you, what do you think? This is like a job. I have a job. I felt that this way about succession. Good. I couldn't oh, yeah. stand it until the third season, but I yeah, but like muddled through. I'm out. I'm out. No, I'm, I don't. I will not give people that much time. Like, I, who knows how much time? How many? I don't know how many summers I have left, Megan. So, like, what am I going to like? You yeah. know, waste them on the first two seasons of some dumb show because the third season's good? No. Yeah, like, I don't really? know what got into me. I, I think it's, part of it, yeah. I had COVID or something. I was had oh, time that to could kill, be but, yeah. but uh, you were ill. Yeah, don't blame yourself. But like, <laughs> the, the first rule of show business is: do not give the audience homework. Nobody pays for homework. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody trying to get in the business now? It's very, I mean, it's hard because it's like, it's a totally different set of rules. People ask me like, oh, how do I get it? You know, tell me, what did you do? And like, what I did is completely irrelevant to what people need to do now. How do I get into the book writing? Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like, I I think, I I just, I just actually spoke to a class at NYU here and and they said this sort of question came up and I was like, well, I mean, you got to think really hard about what your superpower is. Like, who are you and what do you really care about? And what makes, I mean, I don't even know comedies. Like, what makes you laugh? Like, what makes you excited? What makes you thrilled? And then uh, figure out what story you have to tell that's different and special and interesting and will break through all the other crap that everyone else is telling. That A story that only you can tell. And focus really on what makes you special and cool and interesting and what gets you out of bed in the morning and what you find you're obsessed with. And don't think at all about what you think the business needs, what you think that they're not doing anymore they need to do, or what you think the audience is missing, or what you think you need to teach the audience. Just forget all of that. Just focus only on what's great about you and what is your special thing that makes you interesting and makes people want to hear your story. And then figure out a way to write it. And if you're smart, you'll figure out a way to write it as a comedy. Um, just don't write it as a Western because nobody buys Westerns. <laughs> okay. That's good. That, that applies for everything. I think no matter what you're doing. Yeah, that's somebody accounting, does. Just yeah. don't do a Western. Yeah. Just don't. Get, but I the thing is, if uh, it is a Western, you should do it as a Western because what the worst thing that happens is you don't do it as a Western and then nine months later, somebody does exactly that as a Western and there's a huge hit and you're like, but I could have done that. Why did not? Why did I listen? And, um, you know, that, that is, that's ultimately the big tragedy of show business. It's not that you don't make it. It's that you don't do the thing that you wanted to do and then you see that movie in the movie theater or on TV and it's like that I was going to do that. And then I thought no one would want it. All right. That's very good advice. Where do you think the industry is going to be in five years? It's my last question, I promise. Um, okay. Optimistically, I think what's going to happen is it's all going to explode into a bunch of little pieces. And that's going to be great because show business works better from a lot of little pieces. A lot of little co- companies banding together, pooling their money together, making projects. That's all good. Um, the upside of that is that more opportunity downside of that is that the agents will be in charge, but that's okay too, because the agents are good. Um, they're useful bacteria. I call them. They're like, you know, the probiotics of (laughs) useful bacteria. I like the other thing I want to, uh, I loved that you, you wrote that, um, a bunch of deer is a herd of deer. A bunch of lions is a pride of lions. A bunch of crows is a murder of crows. 
And what is a bunch of writers? A complaint of writers. Brilliant. Uh, and a bunch of actors is an equinox <laughs> of actors. <laughs> a juice fast of actors? <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. A sweet green of actors. <laughs> All right, Rob, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. A lot of fun. Thanks. That was my conversation with television writer and producer and also entertainment business commentator, Rob Long. You can read Rob in commentary and hear him on Martini Shot, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts and especially on The Ankler at theankler.com. Quick clarification, when we were talking about Frank Schaefer and his abortion movie, which was covered on John Ronson's Things Fell Apart podcast, I conflated a couple of things. $1,000 was the name of the episode of Things Fell Apart that talked about the influence of Schaefer's documentary series, How Should We Then Live? I said $10,000, which is not the name of anything. Thank God, because I don't like dolls and 10,000 of them is disturbing. I highly recommend that podcast, by the way. And you can listen to John Ronson talking about it on this podcast. It's the September 4th, 2022 episode. Anyway, what else do you need to know? Uh, If you are a paying subscriber and you are wondering where the bonus content is, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm going to uh, give you guys entirely separate bonus episodes a couple times a month rather than having the guest stay overtime uh, necessarily. It's sometimes hard to get guests to stay overtime. So I'm going to try it this way. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, become one at megandom.substack.com. Lots of great stuff there. If you're interested in the Unspeakeasy, my viewpoint diversity community for women, we have just announced some of our 2024 retreats. So go to theunspeakeasy.com and find out about them. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. Mm-hmm.